You're listening to The Last Call, a Down the Pub podcast production. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode. Welcome to the first episode of The Last Call. This is a new show that's produced by Down the Pull Podcast. We know our listeners aren't just football fans, so regular host Chris Searle and his guests will delve into many sporting topics every Sunday. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. The first episode of The Last Call is guest hosted by Anthony Abbott. In this episode, he talks to armchair commentary co-host Steve Steele, about The Last Dance, the incredible Michael Jordan documentary that's on Netflix. We also have a piece that was produced and recorded by Sam Gillette, a journalism graduate from King's College. So please sit back, relax, and on with the show. Joined by Steve Steele. Um, we talked we talk a little bit about the thing that everybody's been talking about, the, the Last Dance um, documentary on Netflix. If you've been living under a rock, you probably haven't heard about it, but the rest of the world is it's the new tiger king i guess but it, um so yeah so i i was th- i watched it i loved it as we know from the podcast i'm not a basketball guy so i thought i'd reach out to my guy who knows everything about basketball ronnie flynn but uh ronnie wasn't available so i asked steve Steele to come along and hang out instead uh <laughs> sorry ronnie i yeah <laughs> So before we before we kick in and talk about it, um, it's been quite a while since you've been on the podcast. Uh, you've been kind of ignoring my calls and all that kind of stuff because <laughs> you've got a new job. So uh, t- tell us a little bit about uh, what what you're doing now. Uh, yeah, um, I have a, I'm a co-host on a show that I was kind of on a lot. Like I alternate between yours and his. Uh, it's called Armchair Commentaries. It's hosted by uh, Dave Smith, and um, yeah, it's it's great. Um, it's it's right now with the lack of sports is a lot of like, you know, we're doing who's the best of and who's the best of this and who's the best at that type episodes, which is where I'm most comfortable. I'm more comfortable talking about like historical sports than I am talking about like up-to-date sports. Cause I feel like if I miss a day in regular sports, I'm like, Oh God, I don't know what I'm talking about. I'm talking into my ad, you know, like I, I don't like that. So for me, like what we're about to do is we're about to discuss the last dance. Cause like I'm a Michael Jordan historian at the worst of times and at the best of times, a Chicago Bulls nineties fanatic. So um, I love talking about old sports, like sports that happened before. I just, I think my love of sports started as a very young age. So like the nostalgia that everyone suffers from happens to me most with old sports. Like it's nothing to me to put on like a basketball game from 1992 and watch it on YouTube on a Saturday afternoon. Like that is a great day for me. It's just Um, like, I guess like, I mean, like, you know, when you hear you talk about like sneaks and stuff for that. Like, uh, it's usually the retro ones that kind of get you, yes, get yes. you tingling. And I guess it's, it, you're right. It's one of those kind of things that when you see something from your childhood, it kind of just makes you, um, it's got that kind of that warm feeling, I guess. Right. Um, yeah. so yeah. So, so where can people find, uh, the podcast? You can get it on Spotify, uh, armchair commentaries. You can get it on Apple music. You can find it on anchor as well. I believe it's also on Google podcast. It's on iTunes all those platforms, like platforms you would normally get, like I'm sure I think it's on Stitcher as well. I use Spotify personally. Um, I find Spotify the best for like managing podcasts and what I listen to, like your podcast down the pub, which I just finished last week, the, the, the world's current episode with the man from the cat, Alvary. I listened to that episode today. 
And I missed, I apparently, I apologize, I might have passed out because I sometimes put like the, the earbuds in and go to sleep with podcasts on. <laughs> I missed the interview with James Jansen, who oddly enough, James Jansen is someone I brought to you to get on the show, but I listened to the interview with James and who's a new father and I knew all that stuff. And James is a good guy, so I was happy to listen to that one. So I, I try to say, even though I'm not a football fan at all, I, I still try to like support and listen. And I don't think I've been on your show since like, episode 29 i think it was of me and uh mitch's rematch i think i believe it was yeah and that was just before the the lockdown and like to be honest like i did have a few obviously i live in canada now so i kind of want to know a little bit more about north american sports and uh just kind of have the same kind of this same kind of knowledge of like so i can talk to people at work i guess right and, like not an awful lot of people are football fans at work so it's kind of nice to have something to talk about so yeah so that's kind of like and obviously like this covid thing is kind of fucked that up a little bit so um, so let, let's get into this last dance thing. So, you know, as I said to you, like, I'm not the world's greatest basketball fan in the world, but everybody was talking about this documentary and I watched it and I was fucking blown away. It's like one of the best <laughs> sports documentaries I think I've ever seen. It was really well put together. I know it's upset a lot of people uh, who were involved in it, but um, it's always going to happen when you're trying to tell a narrative from one person's point of view in an awful lot of ways. So how, t- how did you think yourself how Jordan was depicted uh, overall through the series? Uh, I think you would clearly tell Michael Jordan had final say on every detail of that documentary. I don't want to like spend this podcast like praising Michael Jordan, which I'm going to do a lot. So I want to make it clear the distinction right away is that I may be a huge Michael Jordan basketball player fan. Like I think he's the greatest basketball player ever. I love some of the sneakers, obviously. Uh, I, there's a lot of things Michael Jordan I love. Michael Jordan, the human being, is a sack of shit. Like it, it, it's... <laughs> It's, 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 and I, I don't need to like get into detail all the reasons why I think Michael Jordan's a sack of shit. But I think that documentary kind of showed that Michael Jordan is just not a guy. Like he's got the cult of personality, and everyone's obsessed with him. But like he's just he's just a raging dickhead twenty four seven three sixty five. Like I don't have a problem with him getting on teammates and riding stuff and the shit the stuff they shouldn't have. Like I'm a big believer in shaming people into be better. Like I love when people shame me to be better, and I will do the same thing for others. I don't have an issue with that. But like. The, the narrative he spins about certain things and uh, the way, like, look, those, those stories about Scotty Pippen are true, but we'll get into that. But, like, yeah, I felt it was really good. But if you saw the NWA Shred of the Compton movie, have you ever seen that movie? Oh, my God. That's, like, too, I must be the only person who thinks that's never seen it? Fuck, that, no, that's the worst fucking movie. I, I hated it. Like, I, okay. I, I, just, so, I saw it in the theaters and I fucking hated it. it was so awful. that movie had, was good enough, I suppose. Like, I don't know if I hated it. It was good enough. Oh. If the Tupac movie was far worse is what I'm trying to say. But the problem with it was, is you could tell Dr. Dre had final say on every detail in the movie because Dr. Dre was basically Clark Kent the entire movie. So, like, and I think that's what The Last Dance suffers from is, like, Michael Jordan, like, obviously as great a basketball player as he was. And, like, I'll get into fine details as you ask me questions about it and stuff. But Jordan really kind of put on his own hero worship hat for this documentary. And he was above reproach. And all everything he did was great. And it was just kind of nauseating. But there's points where he's redeemable. And there's points where he's not. He's not a perfect human being. No one is. And everyone has their down moments and high moments in that documentary. But I feel like it was as fair as it could be with Michael Jordan having total control over it. Yeah, I think so, too. Like, I mean, like, like he – as I said, like I kind of know bits and pieces about Michael Jordan, but I, I honestly think that they, um, as you said, that there was a few like little pieces in there that you know you wouldn't expect. So I think kudos to to him for allowing some of this stuff. But it kind of makes you wonder what they actually left out. Um, so so obviously, obviously, like it kind of started off um, with, when he 
was drafted by the Bulls or whatever like that. So the, one of the, the first parts of the movie were obviously about, or the documentary were about um, the 80s Pistons um, who come across as these bullies and all that kind of stuff. So like, how good were those 80s Pistons? Really good. Um, put it in the term, um, it depends what you're looking for. Like skill-wise, like there was one or two skill guys on the Pistons. There was, like, there was Isaiah Thomas. Dumars was coming into his own. Robin was just kind of like a hustle athlete at that point in time. But they also like like Vinnie Microwave Johnson. For a couple of years, they had a guy named Adrian Dantley who could score his ass off, but they traded him for Mark McGuire, and that's when they started winning championships. Because Dantley was like fighting for Alpha with Isaiah Thomas back in the 80s. But again, none of this matters. If you want to ask me, at a scale of one to ten, how good were the Detroit Pistons from 1987 to 1991 when Jordan knocked them off in the conference finals and they walked off the court? They were like they weren't the best team of their era. I think the Lakers are probably the best team of that era, but like they're probably the third best team from the 80s. I think that would be the 80s into the early 90s. Like, that would be the third best team. It'd be Lakers, Celtics, then. The Sixers won a championship in the 80s. But, like, literally in the 80s, only the Lakers, Celtics, Sixers, and Pistons won titles. Nobody else won a title in that decade. So, wow. That's the third awesome. best team of that decade. It's crazy. Uh, that's, that's crazy. Like, I mean, it, they just came, as I said, they came across as, like, bullies and uh, – <clears throat> almost like the, the Bulls were this amazing skilled team and they come up. Well, with hold them. on. Th- that's true. They were bullies, but like basketball was, you watch basketball today and it's not like basketball in the seventies and eighties. So they, they uh, I don't know if you're going to ask me, but they alluded to like the cocaine use and the, the behavior of NBA players. NBA players used to be like in the seventies and eighties, like hockey players in the seventies. Like there was like an enforcer on teams and goons and guys that could fight because brawls used to happen and things like that. And that nature used to happen a lot in basketball. So the Pistons weren't necessarily any tougher than any other, a lot of other teams. The Pistons were, for lack of a better term, dirtier than a lot of other teams. Like one of the best skill players ever, Kevin McHale, like flying clotheslines, Kurt Rambis in game four or five of the 1984 um, NBA Finals. Like you can, you can Google it, go on your computer right now and type in Kurt Rambis, Kevin McHale, and you'll see the play. And you're like, oh my God, was he trying to kill him? But that was the only time that ever happened with Kevin McHale. So like, you can take that moment, like that's a dirty play, but the Pistons, like Lambeer, Rick Mahorn, Robman to an extent kind of got in it, but Isaiah wasn't taking cheap shots at guys. It was mostly Mahorn and Lambeer, and like Sally, John Sally. There's a couple of guys that were, but Mahorn and Lambeer were kind of the guys, but Lambeer was such a prick that when like Mahorn left the team and went to the Sixers in the late 80s and early 90s, he got in fights with Lambeer, and those guys are like brothers and teammates, but like Lambeer was such a prick that like even Mahorn punched him in the face the next year. Like it was... Bill Lambeer is like the real bully of the Detroit Pistons. Mahorn too. Mahorn and Lambeer. Like Isaiah was a great skill player. Dumars was a great two-way basketball player. LeBron, I mean, LeBron. Dennis Robin was a great rebounder. Uh, Vinny Microwave Johnson was a great scorer. Like there was good basketball players on that team. But Mahorn and Lambeer were the anchors of the bad boy Piston image and the dirtiness. And like Sally and those guys took shots too. But like it was mostly Mahorn and Lambeer. So they're not really bullies. They were just dirty. Like Lambeer wasn't a high skill player. But, like, you know, he would, he would try to break you. He would try to like, punch you in the guts and the ribs or elbow you in the neck when you were going to the basket and stuff. And that's what the Jordan rules are based upon. So they were the best team in the 80s. And I don't think they were bullies. I just think they were a dirty team. And the I, NBA allowed it back then. I think, but I think, I think that's the thing, though. It's like <clears throat> you kind of have to look at the era where that happened. Like football back in the 70s and 80s it was the same way. You always had, like, a kind of a person who would break up people. Like, you know what I mean? That they'd be, like, throwing yeah. dirty tackles. It's just, you know, as you said, like, these guys – and. Obviously, I talk about the same thing with the enforcers and all that kind of stuff where, you know, you just had that person who wasn't probably good at the sport, but they were good at getting in people's faces and just being niggly and putting people off their game. And that's, it is what it is. 
Um, so you kind of alluded there a little bit to um, the the, co- the cocaine thing, and this okay. this this has been a kind of bone of contention a little bit with the with the guys from the Bulls back on back in the eighties. Uh, you know, Jordan was kind of talking about them being cocaine fiends and all that kind of stuff. Like so, so like how much of that do you like? I know you're, how much do I believe, or how much do I know about? Um, both, I guess. You know, because obviously as I believe like, all of it first and foremost, uh, and second of all. Michael Jordan, uh, here's how I'll tell you how cocaine rocked the, the basketball world in the 70s and 80s. It wasn't covered in the last dance because, again, Michael doesn't like to like cast any light on anyone but himself. But Michael Jordan's role model was a guy named David Skywalker Thompson, uh, basketball player, kind of like Jordan before his time in the 70s, like a high flyer, highlight real guy. David Skywalker Thompson's career was completely railroaded by cocaine use. Like, it just simple and plain, no questions asked. Absolutely, 100% ruined his career, cocaine. Uh, cocaine ruined a lot of guys' careers. Uh, the 70s, like the 1980 NBA Finals, where Magic Johnson started in place of Kareem, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at center, scored 42, 15, and 10, and won the title, ran on tape delay. Like, they didn't play it live. The world championship was decided on tape delay. You had to watch it like three hours after it happened. Oh, wow. That's the state of the NBA. The year Jordan comes into the league is 84-85. The NBA experienced a big renaissance in the 1984 NBA Finals when the Lakers and the Celtics met in the finals. Like, they're not a renaissance, like a coming out party of sorts. It was Magic versus Bird. It was like, it was this big star thing that happened. And that's why when people think of the 80s, they think of Magic and Bird instantly, right? Like, other than the fact they won eight of the, not the 10 titles in the 80s, basketball kind of like got put on a different platform of Magic and Larry. So, and the reason why basketball had a hard time getting on those platforms, and I hate to say this, and it's not because I think this way, obviously, is white people didn't like watching a predominantly black sport. It is what it is. I mean, it sucks, but that's what it is. Uh, and also, like, there were a lot of them were like kind of drug-addled idiots, like great athletes, but like, I mean, I can, I can give you a list. Of, like, the, night, the second overall pick of the 1986 NBA MD draft was a guy named Len Bias, who was selected by the Boston Celtics. He died of a cocaine overdose, two, like, three days after he got drafted. You know what I mean? Like, it, 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 cocaine in the 80s is a real thing. So if the guys in the Bulls want to act like, oh, it wasn't us, like, it probably was. And maybe Michael threw the whole team under the bus. And maybe it was only seven guys. But if it's a seven guys of a 12-man roster, it's still a large chunk of the roster doing – fucking cocaine uh, and oddly enough there's a canadian connection to this story um andrew wiggins canadian basketball player who i've thrown shots at on this podcast in the past his father was on that bulls team where michael was a rookie so he was apparently in that room too so who knows i can't be like oh yeah this guy did cocaine and this guy did cocaine and this guy did cocaine i, I wasn't there I wasn't I'm, I'm not gonna get sued by anybody over this am i no, I'm just saying he was on that team. I'm not saying whether or not he did cocaine. I, I can't prove who – I know David Skywalker Thompson has been very open to this cocaine use, and there's been a lot of basketball players. Another guy that was on Jordan's early teams was a guy named George the Iceman Gerben. George Gerben is a three-time scoring champion, one of the 50 greatest basketball players of all time. They voted in 1997. Gerben was like 32 when he played with Jordan, 32, 33, and completely washed up, like had seen better days. Like you swear he was 50 the way he played. So – Drug use was a thing in the NBA in the 70s and 80s. And anybody that wants to take events to it, the, the National Basketball Association almost died behind cocaine problems that players had. So, so I, I believe so, it. So was there, there, was no, there was obviously no drug testing then, was there? Oh, God, no. Hell no. No, Jesus, no. Okay. Stern changed the NBA. Stern took over the – Stern's first year as the uh, commissioner of the NBA is the year Jordan was drafted. So 84. 84 onwards is where you see the NBA start going up like this, uh, going up an upward trajectory. Uh, prior to Stern, the NBA was kind of like 
it was well behind the NHL. It was way well behind the NFL. Well, Major League Baseball was like the national pastime. So like now, like sports is kind of shifted in North America, where like the National Football League is number one, baseball's number or two, maybe NBA is even number two. It's like one A and one B there, and then like the NHL is down here. Back then, the NBA was the bottom of the pile. The NBA was like basically the equivalent of like MLS. One of the big characters from the the series was Scottie Pippen, obviously. Um, so like a lot of of a lot was made of his contribution to the, to the Bulls team. Like, so what difference did he make when he came along and uh, to, to the team? I mean, at first, not much. Uh, he drafted 87, uh, I believe Central Arkansas. I apologize. Someone probably can correct me if they listen to this and they know more about Scotty than I do, which is possible, unlikely, but possible. Yeah, Scotty was, um, Scotty was like a, the term wingspan, I think, was created for Scotty. Basketball is all about wingspan, how long your arms are and how far you can, because that makes it harder for guys to get by you or get shots over you, right? Scotty was like the ultimate wingspan guy. But I don't think any other Chicago Bull had a chance to do anything until the triangle offense is implemented. The, the documentary kind of glosses over that. Like, we'll get into that probably. But, like, in the documentary, it's like, oh, yeah, Tex Winters came up with this offense. And, like, you know, he, Phil was his prodigy to run it. And Jerry really wanted to run it. Because Jerry Krause often gave Michael Jordan the bad medicine that Michael Jordan's ego wouldn't tolerate. So... When the triangle offense came in, Scotty was always a tenacious, incredible defender and great effort guy, decent ball handler. And all this. But when Doug Collins coached the Chicago Bulls up until the 1989, I think the 1989-90 season, I think it was, where Collins left and Phil came in, I think Phil was there for the first loss, of the, the last loss of the Pistons in 90 when they went seven. If I'm not mistaken, I'm pretty sure he was. But Doug Collins' entire Bulls strategy as head coach was everything revolves around Michael Jordan at all time. Michael Jordan's the primary ball carrier. Get the ball to Jordan. We don't have a point guard. We have Michael Jordan. Every offensive play is designed for Michael Jordan to score. And that's why if you go back and look at Collins' years as Jordan's head coach and why Jordan loved Collins so much. So much so, in fact, that when Jordan came back with the Wizards and was a part owner of the Wizards, the head coach he hired was, in fact, Doug Collins. <laughs> he loved Doug Collins. And, by the way, nothing wrong with Doug Collins. It's just Doug Collins is like, I got Michael fucking Jordan. Let me use Michael fucking Jordan, which is great because he's Michael fucking Jordan. But Scottie Pippen, Horace Grant, B.J. Armstrong, John Paxson. John Paxson wasn't that great, but, like, he was an all right basketball player. Bill, uh, Charles Oakley was Jordan's best friend. Krause traded him. They talked about that for Bill Cartwright because um, the, the Knicks in the 80s tried to run a two seven-footer scheme with Patrick Ewing and Bill Cartwright that just didn't work. By the way, uh, thoughts and prayers to Patrick Ewing who contacted con contracted the con – Yeah, I saw, I saw that, yeah. Yeah, hopefully he's going to be okay. I'm a huge Patrick Ewing fan. Hopefully nothing bad happens to him. But, uh, yeah, so – Jerry always kind of kept Michael on edge, and that's why there's a lot of shots taken at him. As far as Scottie Pippen, how good he was, Scottie Pippen emerged in 1990, which obviously the documentary brought up the migraine. Scott, what they don't talk about in the documentary is Scottie suffered from migraines his whole life. And so, so you do suffer just, from migraines, you do. Just, them, right? just before you get into that, like, yeah, I, I, I actually agree to that. Like, I feel it was kind of random that they just picked on this one moment that he suddenly had a migraine like he'd never suffered them from before and to be honest anybody who's had a migraine knows they fucking suck like suck. they're not they're not yeah. fun at all um and if you suffer from them and you, you can feel that they're coming on and all that kind of stuff right so like, he probably knew he could you could feel it that it was coming on right so I, I i thought that was kind of a shitty shitty way that they kind of handled that i thought well you, you know? saw how shitty a person michael jordan can be that's what that's what that showed like yeah the, the fucking emasculate and make someone seem like they're faking something in their pussy because they can't play with a fucking migraine. Most people don't even get out of bed with a migraine. Imagine going into an arena with 18,000 people screaming and bright lights and basketballs yeah. dribbling and reverberations with a migraine. Like, 
Scotty, when Scotty says he's seeing double, Scotty was probably seeing double. Like, and like it cut, they kind of touch back. They pick on Scotty a few times in the documentary. And um, some of it's fair. Uh, the 94 thing where he wouldn't come in for the last play of game three in the 94 Eastern Conference playoffs against the Knicks. I remember watching that game and be like, what the hell? Where's Scott? I was 10. I was like, where's Scotty Pippen? He was the Bulls' best player. You expect the best player to be on the floor for the last shot, even just to be a fucking decoy, Scotty. Like, man up and be a teammate. Now, they, they, they did say, like, you know, Scotty apologized to his teammates and everyone forgave him and everything else. But that's cool and that's fine. But, like, it, it was a death by a thousand cuts of how they kind of assassinated Scotty Pippen in the documentary, which I didn't care for. Is Scotty kind of a whingy prick at times? Absolutely. But, like, uh, so is Michael. So is Dennis. So is, so is Horace Grant. Horace Grant comes off as a whiny prick the whole documentary. Like, every. Everybody with an ego can come off as a whiny prick when the net and like gets negatively ever cast upon them. And Scotty has that. But like the, the migraine game, I don't think I know the migraine game. I've watched the game. I've read lots of stories about it. I read the Jordan Rules book, which they talk about the documentary. I've read lots of books about basketball in my life. And I don't think I until that documentary, I'd never seen anyone imply that Scotty wasn't was less than like, you know, yeah. Michael was the first time I'd ever seen someone imply that Scotty was faking or Scotty was being a bitch. You know what I mean? Like, I get it. But Michael Jordan's a psychopath. Like, we, I think that's the key, too, that you have to take out of this. Is like, he's not a murderous psychopath, but he, he is a psychopath. Like, he, his behavior is not normal. I think, like, people, people put that as the, the mindset of a champion and all that kind of stuff. And, like, you see it. You do see how people who strive to be the top have to be huge fucking assholes. I mean, like, in Formula mm-hmm. One, you've got like Eric and Senna and Michael Schumacher, who are both huge fucking dicks. Well, Michael Schumacher tried to kill fucking Jacques Villeneuve. So, I mean, yes. I didn't try and kill him. It was just a, a bump off the track. Anyway. Shut the uh, fuck up. You're in uh, Canada now, pal. You agree with me on this. Okay? No, I'm a Schumacher you, you fan. You can get that so. opinion on this. You're Canadian now. You tried to fucking kill him. Sorry. We're going 140 miles an hour, Anthony. <laughs> Jesus Christ. No, uh, yeah, it, was, it was just a tap. Anyway, um, <laughs> Jack, Jack Villeneuve's it. it, it, it douchebag anyway 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 that's mm. that's mm. mm. talking about fucking ego is that guy had a fucking huge ego anyway oh, Schumacher. so so uh, obviously uh scotty like scotty pippen's contract negotiations were uh brought up in it too like you know that like he was kind of shafted a little bit do you, do you think that he was or like is that mm. because i mean he signed like a long-term deal just before the nba took off and like the the owner like kind of said that he um, wouldn't have signed that contract, and he told him not to sign it, which I don't believe for a second, to be perfectly honest. But anyway, like, why, why, why did he sign it? Like, do you think what, was it a good deal at the time when he did sign it? And like, yes. what? And like, why, why was he then bitching about it? Like, towards because he was bitching about it. Let's be fair. So, well, because he signed a long-term fucking deal. If that deal ended in nineteen ninety-four. He, there would never been a word about it, but he signed. Okay, this has got to be broken down in parts. One, I want to make it clear: I don't believe a goddamn word Jerry Reinsdorf said, where he told him not to sign that contract. Because uh, if he told him not to sign that contract, he probably would have been forgiving him, like, okay, we can come back and renegotiate and, like, you know, doing a contract. He's just trying to save face for a fucking Netflix, which he knows is going to be a cultural event. So that's all that was. Scotty Pippen got one point eight million dollars a year for seven years. Okay, if you notice in the documentary. In 1993, when Jordan quit and went to play baseball, Jerry Reinsdorf says, I paid Michael his basketball salary because he was criminally underpaid his entire career at $3 million a year. Michael fucking Jordan was getting $1.2 million a year 
than Scottie Pippen in 1993. And now you think to yourself, well, Scottie's so criminally underpaid. How fucking criminally underpaid was Michael Jordan? Michael Jordan never sat out. Michael Jordan's contract ended in 1995. And then his last three years, he came back on one-year deals where he made almost all of his career earnings of like 30, 35, and $36 million. In the 90s, which by the way, guys get today, and it's like a huge contract. He was getting that in the 90s. So, um, Scotty's seven-year, $1.8 million a year. Basically, it's seven years, $18 million was the contract. Um, the highest-paid player of the year, Scotty Pippen signed the contract, was Patrick Ewing at $8 million a year. It wasn't like today's game where guys, like, middling six men are getting 15 to $17 million a year. You've got to keep that in context. So when you hear a professional athlete gets $1.8 million a year and you don't know shit about professional sports in the history, $1.8 million a year in 1991 isn't bad money. For a guy that wasn't really overly offensively gifted, Scotty was a decent offensive player, but he wasn't like, you know, he wasn't, he likes to get on TV now and talk like he was, he would have been James Harden if he played today. It's like, he wouldn't be. Scotty wasn't that kind of player. Scotty was a great ball handler, great facilitator, decent shooter. And I stress decent, incredible defender, incredible basketball savvy, like athletic through the ass. He's got a lot of things going for him, but those aren't intangibles that were really highly valued in 1991. Nowadays, the analytics and stuff like that, we can look at how really good Scotty Pippen, I'm not a big fan of analytics, but the analytics can show you how good Scotty Pippen really was. Whereas, like, back then, we just, you know, how many points you scored in the game last year? How many rebounds? How many wins you get? How many, def- you know, like, how many blocks? How many steals? Like, it was all brass tacks. And Scotty was great rebounding defensively. And, like, my, all Michael's baskets were basically scored with Michael doing everything anyway. Like, Michael wasn't doing catch and shoots, you know, that wasn't Michael. Yeah. Michael dribble. You saw the clips, the highlights. Michael was dribbling a lot and doing everything, right? So Scotty's numbers weren't overly astounding. Was he a key contributor to the Bulls? Yeah, he was the second best player on the fucking team. He was obviously, obviously a key contributor. But um, can you name the second member of the Supremes after Diana Ross? Well, you can't know. No, because Michael fucking Jordan's Diana Ross. So, <laughs> Scottie Pippen was a great basketball player. I have nothing but respect for him. I love him. But you signed a seven-year, $18 million contract because you knew it would take care of your family for the next seven years because you grew up poor, the, the youngest of, like, 12 siblings, and knew that $1.8 million was a lot of fucking money, and there was money to be made playing alongside Michael Jordan. You were okay with it. It wasn't until about 1997, 1996-97, where Scotty started to get mad about it when NBA contracts took off and guys like Larry Johnson were making 15 times as much money as he was. But that was the dream team effect. Like basketball exploded after 1993. Guys started making more money. So Scotty just signed a two-year deal, but Scotty, Scotty said it himself in the dock. Like he said, what if I get injured or something like that? This is like good security for my family because nothing's promised. So if you want to whinge and complain about your fucking contract, then whinge and complain about your contract. But you signed it. So you got your big payday in Houston and underdelivered afterwards, Scotty. So I mean, so, I love Scotty Pippen. I'm being negative about him. I think he's a phenomenal basketball player. But he signed. But he, he was worth about 1.8 million dollars to three million, anywhere from 1.8 to three million dollars a year back in 1991. He was paid fair market value. It, no one could have foreseen the dream team effect and the way the NBA exploded in the mid-90s. So, but the thing is, though, like on the flip side, of that, as you said, that like I mean, had he got injured like in 1992 or 1993 like the bulls are on the hook for the rest of the contract right seven, so, six seven more years paying him exactly yeah. Yeah. So, so i mean it's kind of one of those those things like i mean like if you want to have the payday but you got to take the risk right so it's kind of it's a bit of a gamble you know what i mean it, it is what it is and he obviously just chose the one where um it, it was like the security right so i mean you can't really complain um if the, the organization gave him the contract because I, I can't see an organization offering somebody a seven-year contract without that person asking 
for that length of a contract. Well, his agent asked for seven years. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, he got his fair market value in 1991. It wasn't fair market value by 1998, but that's nobody's fault but Scotty's that he signed the fucking contract. Like, I don't believe Jerry Reinsdorf said don't sign this contract. I really don't. I, I believe Reinsdorf was like, this is, he probably saw the NBA numbers and saw things trending in a certain way. And like Scotty at that, if Scotty doesn't sign that contract, the Bulls aren't the Bulls because there's a salary cap in the NBA. So like, there's a lot of intangibles that come into Scotty's contract. And playing alongside Michael Jordan got Scotty Pippen a Nike endorsement, got Scotty Pippen a McDonald's commercials. You know what I mean? Like, Scotty made a lot of money by being Robin. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, he's not Chris O'Donnell where Robin kind of killed his career. He was actually a really good Robin and made a lot of money as it. So Scotty's like, Scotty can be bitter all he wants, but he's considered an all-time great, an all-time champion, and all those things. But if he had stayed as a fucking Seattle SuperSonic, he wouldn't have been any of those things. And maybe he would have made a little bit more money earlier in his career, but he'd be completely fucking forgettable because he'd be like Detlef Shrimp of the SuperSonics. No one remembers Detlef Shrimp except for me, and I'm a basketball player. <laughs> Scotty so, Pippen is the best second banana of all fucking time, and Scotty Pippen needs to remember that he was the second fucking banana. He wasn't Harold Melvin. He was one of the fucking blue notes. You know what I mean? Like, it's that's all I got to say about Scotty Pippen. So, um, obviously then, like, the next kind of character that came along was uh, was Rodman. Um, like I don't even know where to start with with, with this fucking stuff. Like he, uh, like, like he, they, they, he, they obviously said he made a huge difference to the team, which he did. But I mean, it, they also kind of said he got away with so much stuff. And you think of like what was said about Scotty Pippen about like you know like the migraine and sitting out that game in '94. To me, like Rodman did way worse stuff and was kind of just that's Dennis kind of thing like how good of a player was he and like how did he get away with all this stuff well you want to know how good Dennis Rodman was it's, it's hard to quantify but I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples the series kind of glosses over the 1996 NBA finals against the Seattle Supersonics where like they talk about Gary Payton shutting down Michael Jordan and all that stuff the 1996 finals MVP was Dennis Rodman but he didn't win the award they gave it to Jordan Robin was the best player on the court for the Chicago Bulls. He completely dominated the series. He shut down Sean Kemp. He grabbed every goddamn fucking rebound you could possibly have. And he played a great facility. Did Dennis Robin score like Michael Jordan? Absolutely fucking not. Dennis Robin was a mediocre at best offensive basketball player. But the best rebounder I've ever seen in my life, one of the best defenders I've ever seen in my life, the best mind game player, and also one of the smartest basketball players I've ever seen in my life. So... Dennis Rodman was criminally underappreciated his entire career. Even though he's a first wild Hall of Famer, he's still criminally underappreciated. He was unbelievable. Like you can kind of see the hustle plays that he put in in the in the clips they showed and stuff like that. Like he did that every night, dude. Whether he was in like you know whether it was like a middling regular season game against the Charlotte Hornets or it was the NBA Finals against the Utah Jazz, Dennis Rodman brought it every fucking night, like to the death. So. I think drawing comparisons to Dennis's off-court antics, which, by the way, are bullshit. There's no question about that. But Michael didn't have a problem with Dennis's behavior because it was happening away from the court. Uh, I think a lot of problems with Michael have with Scotty were because of the issues on the court. I think Michael Jordan was a much nicer person off the court than he was on the court. And I think oh, you can, you, can, you, can talk, you can see that, man. Like, I mean, like when he yeah, was you can see it. Like, he seems like a much more likable guy off court, right? Like, even but, like with, you know, when, with, the, with the kids at the, after the games and all that kind of stuff. He had a lot of time to, for, for the kids. And you know, even when he's playing golf with his buddies and stuff, like, he seems like a pretty personable kind of person, to be perfectly honest. But, you know, w- w- when you see him in training and you see him on the court, he's a fucking asshole. You know, I, I wouldn't want to play with the guy. Like, I know he's like the one. I would. 
That's my DNA, though. I'm wired. I'm nowhere near like Michael. I'm not Michael Jordan in any stretch of the imagination. I have none of those talents or those skills. And I, I'm not even putting myself in that. But You're an asshole. Is that, is that how it helps? I, I'm an asshole like Michael, yeah. <laughs> but I, I, I alluded to it earlier that I'm like a person that shames people into like better, right? And if Michael Jordan rode my ass, if I was a Chicago, if I was lucky enough to play with Michael Jordan the Bulls in the 90s, I would take that beating and let it motivate. Because I'm not a person that gets upset and has his feelings hurt. I'm someone that strives to do better and one-up and beat you. That's that's how I live. We've had conversations offline about things that people have said, and I'm like, well, bring them on. Oh, well, let's let's have that conversation. Because I will kill you in that. And that's how I feel. Like, I'm like Michael Jordan. I'll take the slight, and I'll use it. So I don't have a problem with how Michael treated his teammates. Scott Burrell was lucky to be on the fucking 90 Chicago Bulls. A lot of those fucking guys. Judd Butchler was is that the guy? Is that the guy that was complaining about being bullied the whole time? Uh, I know Scott Burrell complained about being bullied. They just showed Michael picking on Scott Burrell to establish the narrative throughout the whole documentary. I don't think Scott Burrell's even in the documentary that much, to be honest. I think there was, a, there was a few like little bits and pieces where you know like he was like talking down to him, being like an asshole to him. But but as you said, like I mean, you, you, people like we'll never understand because obviously we're not professional athletes, and you know like, like it, you, you never you're not around people. But anytime you read any books about the, the people who are at the top of their game, like they're born to be that way because yes. like they they're driven. They're yeah. absolutely driven. And it's also like that they, they can see that somebody's not as good as them, but they want them to just put the fucking effort in. And that's the huge difference. I think is when people are not Michael making Jordan is not the most talented basketball player to ever enter the NBA. He's the hardest working, most determined basketball player to ever enter the NBA, but he's not the most talented. He's not even the most talented of his era. There's guys that were more talented than Michael Jordan in the NBA in the eighties and nineties. Like that's not, Let's let's get that clear. Like Jordan had talent, but Jordan's talent was all hard work. Michael Jordan, the first half of his career is all athleticism and jumping out of the gym and doing all that crazy stuff. But by the time the last dance is taking place, Michael Jordan's all brain and footwork and sheer willpower. He's still winning in 97 and 98 on like dead legs, nothing left, but just sheer determination, force and willpower is why he's winning. Michael Jordan in 1998 is not Michael Jordan in 1988. You know what I mean? Like, his game evolved. So on a podcast yesterday, I did something, and um, well, I'm not going to go into hockey, but someone mentioned Pat Alberry, played for the Vancouver Canucks in the 90s, blah, blah, blah. Super fast Russian hockey player, scored goals, moved the speed of light. And he's like, oh, I feel like he's a fringe all-time grand. I'm like, no, because when he got injured and he lost a step, he wasn't good anymore. Forget great, he wasn't even good anymore. Michael Jordan, when he lost his jumping ability and the air part of Air Jordan disappeared and he was just fucking Jordan, was still a killer, still unbelievable. He lost three steps, but he was still great because through sheer force of will. Tom Brady's another example of him today. Tom Brady's still great because he still wants it. He's still the psychopath and him still needs to win. He's not the athlete he was. He was never really much of an athlete anyway, but he, hard work and determination paid off, right? Like that's what that is. And Jordan's that. Like guys in the 90s, there's lots of guys from the 90s that were better basketball players on paper than Michael Jordan. Like um, there's a guy that played for the New Jersey Nets in the 90s named Derek Coleman. On paper, one of the most unreal basketball players on earth just didn't give a shit, you know, too much, too soon, was given a big contract, didn't feel like he needed to earn anything, just didn't put in the effort and was phased out of the league slowly but surely. Lots of guys. Uh, uh, fuck, man. Uh, Sean Kemp, who played on those 96 Supersonics, incredible freak talent of a basketball player. Just was like, got fat and lazy, got a ton of money. Like, Jordan never let, let like, success stop him. Like, you know, you know when you, like, you accomplish a goal, like, say, uh, any normal human being, like, I, I want to lose 15 pounds, and you lose that 15 pounds, but you're, like, you're still kind of a chubby fuck, but you lost the 15 pounds, so you feel like you accomplished your goal. Jordan wouldn't stop until he lost 50 pounds. And then he would try to lose 75 until a doctor told him to fucking stop losing weight because it was unhealthy. 
And there's a lot of people, people don't like that in people. And that's fair because it's not a very likable personality trait. Dennis Rodman didn't have that trait. Dennis Rodman wasn't married to the game of basketball. Basketball was a way out to express himself and earn a living. But he had this whole other side of him that he probably would have just walked away from basketball if the Bulls did not offer him a contract. Dennis Rodman was a basketball like savant and he just got it. And he didn't need the head cracking, the whip. And he didn't, Jordan never rode Dennis Rodman. He, uh, uh, Jordan would give Dennis Rodman a look and Dennis Rodman would be like, all right, fair enough. And he would go do his fucking job. Not everybody's as good as Dennis Robin. Steve Kerr wasn't as good as Dennis Robin. Scott Burrell wasn't as good. Horace Grant wasn't as good. Like, Horace Grant was a good basketball player. But Horace Grant's like a guy that has like the – is really kind of attacking this Last Dance documentary. So let's move on to something else because Dennis Robin, the shit was worth it. Let's put it that way. All the bullshit was worth Dennis Robin. He was worth the price of admission. That's the best way I could say. So, you know um, – uh, let me see here. Sorry. This is what editing's for. Yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> So I, I guess that we just went over like the the fact that he was an asshole. So they they kind of alluded, and this is all, this was something that like I kind of heard. Obviously, um, I'm, I'm not a ba- I keep saying I'm not a basketball fan, so I just want people to know that I'm not a basketball fan. But uh, uh, like the it was kind of touched upon in, in the thing, but it was always something that uh, was always seen to me as being like a that was always kind of in the background of stuff was the gambling part of mm. Michael's life. So. You being like a huge Jordan historian, autobiography. So yes, I know. Yeah. So so the thing is, like, I mean, in the documentary, he's playing like like fucking like toss coin. He's playing coin toss with some of the security guys, and he's trying to win for like twenty bucks. Like twenty bucks, Michael Jordan wipes his ass with. So to me, that kind of showed a little bit of how all wasn't well in the gambling thing when he's like doing that with um like with just like regular joes for 20 bucks and getting upset when he was losing and all that kind of stuff so i know there's that competitive edge that these guys have and as you, as you said there before that you know he like the will to win but mm-hmm. did you think some of that will to win was coming from that adrenaline from like you know the gambling side of things you know like because i mean that's let's be honest like i mean if you've ever uh you don't do it here in Canada, like obviously as much. But in Ireland, like you know, like there's big race meets, and you go to the pub and you put a few bets on the horses, and there's not a the horses, yeah. there's a huge fucking adrenaline rush when your horse comes in and you win a bit of money, and it's like sticking to the bookies and all that kind of stuff. So, what was the gambling a bigger deal than what they made of it? Because they kind of brushed over it a little bit, and just I, kinda... I think they make too big of a deal of it in the documentary. You think? Yeah, he he's a competitive guy. So when he needs, when he's not playing basketball, he has a competitive fire to satiate things. And if there's no stakes on the line, it's hard to be competitive. Like he, look, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a quick story about Michael Jordan. That I read in the book once. Michael Jordan once rigged the baggage handlers in O'Hare Airport to bring his baggage off first, so he could win a bet against Scottie Pippen. He gave all the baggage handlers a hundred dollars to beat Scottie Pippen for fifty. Do you understand? <laughs> okay. So that's, that's like, <laughs> so if you want more stories about how competitive Michael Jordan was, uh, Steve Kerr, when he first came to the Bulls, and I think, well, Jordan first came back to the Bulls. It was, I think it was 95 where Jordan came back and Kerr was on the team. I apologize. I don't know the years. But the story is Steve Kerr beat Michael Jordan's ass in ping pong, right? Just whooped his ass. Michael Jordan in the offseason bought a ping pong table, hired one of the best ping pong players in the world to come train him over the summer, and practice every day with a professional ping pong player until he was an exceptional ping pong. So when he got back in the training camp, first day of training camp after practice, 
he challenged Steve Kerr to a game of ping pong and whipped his ass. That's the kind of human being that Jordan is. And I know, see, it's charming, right? Like at certain points you like it, and at certain points you don't. You got to pick your poison with Michael Jordan. Is he a dickhead? Yes. Is he a ruthless serial killer-like competitor? Yes. So the gambling was part of that. Have you ever, like, I personally have been at a casino and had like hit huge in a hand of blackjack with thousands and thousands of dollars hit. There's no adrenaline feeling like it. It's it's just like winning an NBA championship, I'd have to assume, because Michael loves it too. So, you know, Michael wanted to keep gambling after he wanted to stop playing basketball. So I understand where he's coming from. That that feeling of winning against all odds and everything else like that is 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 like it's like heroin. I get why he loved gambling, but Michael Jordan didn't have that bad of gambling debts. He paid his debts. He wasn't broke. He wasn't derelict. You never hear stories of Michael Jordan selling his memorabilia like Pete Rose to pay his bills. <sighs> so, like, he gambles, yes. And people, you'll see the no- do- dollar amounts on it. I think they touch on the last dance. They say, like, Michael Jordan spent $10,000 gambling, but $10,000 to Michael Jordan is $5 to you or I, right? Like, it's you got to keep it in context. What, what was the so, thing about the, the, the guy that he gave the check to? Yeah, he, he probably was on a golf course and like a bunch of guys go golfing like, hey, that's a buddy of a buddy of a buddy. He's in the fucking circle playing golf. And he says, hey, you want to bet on this hole? And douchebag's like, sure, I'll bet on this hole. Douchebag wins. Mike writes him a fucking check, probably as far as it went. You know, like, but I think the center of gravity around Michael Jordan made that guy act like he knew Michael Jordan. Like if I knew Michael Jordan, trust me when you, I tell you, you'd know I knew Michael Jordan or I spent time with Michael Jordan or I golf Michael Jordan. Or if I went, if I mowed Michael Jordan's fucking lawn, I would tell everyone I knew. So I think that's what that guy's doing. We call it clout chasing nowadays in the doc. He was clout chasing in the nineties, being like, "Oh yeah, me and Michael gambled all the time." Because he probably gambled one hole of golf with Michael Jordan, but made it sound like he gambled with him every fucking weekend. You know what I mean? Like, and I would do the same thing, and most of us would. So I'm not accusing him of anything that like I wouldn't do, but he's Michael fucking Jordan. So yeah, you, if I knew fucking Paul McCartney. And I'm like, Paul McCartney wears boxer briefs. And you'd be like, oh, shit, really? But, like, that's how close you want to be to some kind of otherworldly celebrity. You want to be in their space and their gravity. So Mike's gambling isn't as big a deal as it wants to be. I think it's just when you're as clean and as huge as Michael Jordan, people want to bring you back. <clears throat> and I think the documentary touched on that really well. And I think they spent too much fucking time on the gambling, if I'm being frank. Although, as an NBA conspiracy theory, I love the concept that Stern suspended Jordan for his gambling problems. I don't fucking believe it, but I enjoy the theory. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I honestly, um, just like looking at that part of it, it's definitely like, I, I think it's that uh, part of us all that want their heroes to have a little bit of a, a tarnish to them because you don't want somebody to be perfect. And I think that's part of it what that was. Perfect. Yeah, and, and you know, you know it, it is what it is. And, you know, like nobody is perfect. Like we're human beings, right? Like although he's a superhuman, he's also human, right? So... It, 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 it is what it is so um just just kind of like towards the end of it there like you know the, the team won the, the last dance and all that kind of stuff and then michael was kind of seemed to be a little bit upset about how the the team wasn't brought back for another year and all that kind of stuff like do you think yourself that it, it, it had he reached this crescendo and that was enough and it wasn't going to be able to carry on the way it was, or do you think that they should have gone for another year? So remember when I brought up Dr. Dre being Clark Kent and Superman in the NWA movie? Michael Jordan was playing Clark Kent and Superman throughout the whole fucking documentary. Michael Jordan was fucking done in 1998. Michael Jordan implying it that if they all come back together, he would have played again is total 
revisionist fucking history to play that fucking what if game and dangle the carrot over morons like mine, our heads. Michael Jordan was fucking done in 1999. The NBA went on a lockout. He'd been off for a few months. He was doing his thing. Scotty was gone. Dennis was gone. They, the Bulls would have brought everything back. Maybe not Scotty because they probably couldn't afford that contract that he got in Houston. But they would have brought everything they could. They probably would have brought in someone else to help Mike. Mike didn't want to come back. He was. You notice in the documentary we saw him with 97, 98. He saw him. He's emotionally, physically exhausted. He's done all the time. He's like, I, I feel the need. Like Michael wanted to go out a winner. Mike would not have like enjoyed going out losing in the first round or the second round of the 1999 New York Knicks. You know what I mean? Like that would be a really dark time for Mike. Mike knew that his body only had so much left in him. You, like, you got to remember, like LeBron James went to eight straight finals recently. And it's not because LeBron James is a super physical human being, which he is, but people take better care of their bodies now than they did back then. Mike was like, when they win the title in 98, he gets on the fucking bus. He's like, man, it's still light out. Maybe I can get a couple more rounds of golf in. Like golf is not a great sport for a basketball player to be playing all <laughs> that competitively. The swinging of the hips and everything else. Mike's body was done in 1998. Like he was, if you watch that, I've watched that game seven against the Indiana Pacers where they gloss over. Mike and Scotty make that happen via sheer force of will. The Pacers are the better team. The Pacers should have won the game. But Mike and Scotty just take over the game and slow it down to a grinding halt, boring, snooze-fest-inducing pace because they're old and they're slow and they're tired. So I don't think Michael Jordan comes back in 1999. You could have brought Phil, Scotty, and Dennis back. Mike's still probably to walk away. Mike wanted to go golf and fucking gamble and have fun and get into the public eye. He's like, he, even though I don't think he knew that he would be the cult of personality that he is still today in 1998, I think he thought he would – kind of fade a little bit into obscurity like other basketball superstars had. I don't think he envisioned the cruel joke the world would play on him where he has to have like lines set up when he goes to play a game of pool on a pool wall. I don't think Jordan saw that happening for the rest of his life. I think he just wanted out like the endless coverage. And are you coming back next year? Are you coming back next year? Are you coming back next year? I remember the 1998 season. Michael Jordan looked done with the 1998 NBA season probably in December. But his competitive <laughs> nature kept him going. So, no, I don't – I thought that was horse shit. I thought that was unfair to the fucking uh, Jerry Krause. They put that in there to play that way. And then Phil's like, well, I wasn't going to come back anyway. It was the last fucking dance. But the one problem I have with the documentary is they made it sound like it was the last dance for Michael Jordan. It wasn't just the last dance for Michael Jordan. It was the last dance for that entire team and that franchise. It was one last go for Scottie Pippen, Michael Jordan, Dennis Robin, Bill Wennington, Luke Longley, Ron Harper – fucking Judd Buechler, fucking like Scott Burrell, all those guys. Like, Mike, is Mike the center point? Yes, he is. Mike's the star of the show. Mike is fucking Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Absolutely. But there's other parts of that movie. When you watch The Godfather, yes, Michael Colleone is the, the main character, but Sonny and Fredo are important characters. Like, you don't just remember Michael's scenes. And, like, and that's what, like, the last dance really got away. But because Jordan had such control because he was such a superstar and his, his gravity is so intense that, like, the documentary focused entirely too much on Jordan. It, entirely too much. And it was exhausting at times. And maybe it was exhausting for me because I know so much about Jordan that I – whenever they flash back, I, I, I hated it. I hated the flashbacks. I, I hated, hated, hated – because I – I know all of that. Show me the behind the scenes footage from 1998 all day long. I'll watch that stuff with like my with fucking bated breath holding on to the edge of a table. But like reliving the 1991 NBA finals and like the 92 and the dream team and the series, the Suns and baseball. I remember all, now I understand it's for a new generation. So 
the thing about Michael Jordan that's really spiked this is that Michael Jordan is the best of all time. He's the GOAT, blah, 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 whatever. I believe he is, but that's aside the point. I'm not going to make an argument either against what this documentary series has done, and I think why Jordan, if you notice that Jordan, if you hear the story, Jordan okayed this right after LeBron won the title in 2016, which is when everyone was like, well, LeBron's better than Jordan now because oh, he's an achievement, right? Which is fucking horseshit, but that was the concept. So uh, Jordan was like, oh, yeah, well, watch this. Let's make a whole documentary about my greatness in 10 parts, and the whole world's going to watch. And we did, and it just so happened to – well, they, they pushed it up to happen during the coronavirus pandemic, right? Like, it was supposed to come out this summer, but, like, they're like, well, fuck it. Like, this is the perfect time. Everyone's going to watch this. I, fu- I, so, fu- I fucking hate this LeBron versus <clears throat> Jordan thing. Like, I just – it's so hard to compare people from different generations. Like, it, it's, it's impossible. You know, it's like like Jordan, like he's an amazing basketball player, blah blah blah. But LeBron is just as much as a great player, right? It's it's so hard to compare them, especially like, especially now. Like as you said, like you no, know, but like you have to. I guess as you said there, like I mean, you have to look at the fact of like how basketball players look after themselves now, and like it's probably harder for LeBron to. To, 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 because the players around them are like they're not just like stiffs anymore they're like professional like proper professional athletes so it's probably harder right it's kind of you know Jerome James' job may be harder than Michael Jordan's it may not be uh, when Michael Jordan first entered the league the Bulls flew coach you know what I mean so there's all kinds of different aspects here's what I'll say about this the reason why there's no comparison between Michael Jordan and LeBron James has nothing to do with that one being so much greater than the other that you just can't compare them. It has nothing to do with three championships versus six championships and no finals losses versus eight or five finals losses, whatever fucking metric people want to use. The reason is, is they're not even remotely similar basketball players. Like, do you, like, I don't know who the greatest defender or like the greatest like facilitator in football's history is, but you're not going to compare them to Ronaldo. You know, they play a different style of game. They, they don't play the same way. Like, guys, great strikers. I've watched enough football to know, like, great strikers are great. It's like, when Ronaldo gets the ball, you have that fear in your heart that he can score at any time. Like, it, it can happen. That's Michael Jordan. But there's guys that control the fucking game and control the ebbs and flows without having that assassin stuff about them that are incredibly valuable and incredible players. I don't know any of them in football because I don't watch football like you do, but you could probably name a couple. And that's what LeBron James is. LeBron James is one of the best maestros of basketball ever. He may be the greatest all-around basketball player of all time. But I don't sh- – I, even as a Raptors fan, I don't shit myself with the prospect of Michael, uh, LeBron James with the ball in his hand with the clock running out. Or, or, or close games or like LeBron scoring and willing his team back in the games. Like, it happens from time to time, but it wasn't as predictable as Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan would literally like give you quivering bowels for three entire. <laughs> LeBron James is an incredible basketball player and like does incredible. Oh, he's one of the greatest athlete I've ever seen. So I don't want to like take shots at LeBron and be like, oh, he's this or he couldn't shoot as well as Jordan or Jordan had to deal with the Pistons bullies and the elbows. No, fuck all that. I don't care about that. LeBron James is a different type of basketball player. If you want to compare LeBron James to a fucking all-time great basketball player, compare LeBron James to Magic Johnson. You want to compare a modern basketball player to Michael Jordan? Compare Kobe fucking Bryant to Michael Jordan, because those are the parallels. Compare Michael Jordan, LeBron James, like comparing like fucking like you know Guinness to Coors Light. Sure, they're both beers, but they're not the same fucking beer. You know what I mean? Like, or comparing like goddamn Rockport to Nike. Sure, they're both shoes, but they're very different shoes, and that's important because. They're not the same. So if you think one is more valuable than the other and that's what bases your opinion on that, great. You're entitled to that fucking opinion. 
But it's not about fucking championships. It's not about scoring titles. It's not about defensive, all defensive teams, whatever the fuck metric or analytics even. It's about LeBron James is the best all-around basketball player we've probably ever seen. But Michael Jordan is the best basketball player we've ever seen. Because he may be only on offense and defense, he could score the basketball and he was a dominant defender. Period. He just fucking won through sheer force of will. He just fucking won. LeBron just wins too, but like it's over. There's more talent in LeBron James than there is in Michael Jordan. If that's what if you want to ask, then LeBron James is a more talented individual and he's more athletic and he's all those things. But that doesn't mean he's better. Uh, fucking, there's guys in the NBA right now that are better athletes than Michael Jordan never dreamed of being but that doesn't mean they're better basketball players than Michael Jordan. So I hate the fucking argument. I don't even entertain it. If you want to get me mad, you can get blocked. Ask me the question because that's, that's how I feel about it. Um, they're both incredible. They're both otherworldly. It's a privilege to have seen both of them in my lifetime, but I won't pick one or the other. My personal opinion is Michael Jordan, but that doesn't mean I think I'm not going to sit here and trash LeBron James to make Michael Jordan look good because that's fucking stupid. It's incredible. I can't see flaws in LeBron James. Just like I can't see a lot of flaws in Michael Jordan as basketball players. As human beings, LeBron James is a much better human being than Michael Jordan. <laughs> so, so, so you kind of touched upon it there, like a little bit. Um, how do you think that, like Jerry Krause was? I, I feel it was like a, a hatchet fucking job, like on Jerry Krause. It was a hatchet fucking job. You, you, you can tell that, like, no, you can tell that Michael Jordan didn't like him very much. Uh, yeah. But like, what type of? Like, what type of person was he? What did he do for the Bulls? And do you think it was fair the way he was, like, treated? No, it was absolutely fucking horseshit how he was treated. Look, did Jerry make poor decisions and did Jerry overvalue Tony Kukoc? Yeah, but Tony Kukoc wanted to be a key fucking contributor on three NBA championship teams and hit a lot of game-winning shots the year Jordan was gone. Tony was valuable. So did he overvalue him? Maybe. But it doesn't change the fact that he was still fucking valuable. Jerry Krause never made a bad fucking basketball decision in Jordan's entire fucking career. Let's make that clear. For 13 or 12, 13 years, or however long Jerry was the GM of the Chicago Bulls, you can't point until Jordan leaves the Bulls, which you can call Jerry's bad decision because he, he forced Phil out. That's probably the, the, the thing. But otherwise, I, I alluded to earlier, they traded Charles Oakley, Jordan's best friend and career bodyguard, for Bill Cartwright. To like give Jordan a dominant seven footer to rebound and like score in the low post and open up the game for Jordan to make Jordan's full. But Jordan hated it, he cried like a bitch about it, but it was what needed to happen. When they fired Doug Collins, who Jordan loved because Jordan was scoring 37 points a game and winning all kinds of individual awards with Doug Collins, they brought in Phil. Jordan hated it, but yet remember, it was all Jerry Krause's fault. When Jerry was worried about Jordan, the foot, let's talk about the fucking foot. Let's let's go into the foot. The foot's a good indicator of this. It shows Jordan's like true nature too, where he's like, if nine out of ten Tylenol, nine out of ten Tylenol were safe and one could kill you, would you take it? I don't know, Jerry. How bad's the fucking headache? Is what he said. That was Michael. But Jerry was the greatest architect, probably the greatest architect of his time, and one of the best GMs ever. And every move he made, Jerry Krause brought in Dennis Rodman. It wasn't Michael fucking Jordan. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like, Jerry Krause brought in Steve Kerr. It wasn't Michael fucking Jordan. And I can, I can give you a further talent evaluator points of how good Jerry Krause was. Michael Jordan has run the Charlotte Hornets now for 13, 14 fucking years and has made one decent personnel choice in 14 years. <laughs> so, Michael can shit on Jerry Krause all he wants. Jerry Krause was much better at what Michael Jordan's been doing for the last 14 years than, Jerry fucking Krause, uh, than Michael Jordan is. Like, Jerry Krause is one of the greatest GMs I've ever seen. And that documentary did nothing essentially. Oh. But now Jerry said that shit. Now Jerry did say some shit in the documentary where after they won the title, that organizations win championships, players don't win championships. 
Ah, players win championships, my guy. Players and organizations win championships. Okay, they, it's a combination effort. But without Michael fucking Jordan and Scottie Pippen, you're not winning championships either. So but like, like a, probably I mean, I mean, like just just like from an outside point of view, like you know, obviously his his uh, relationship with Phil Jackson had collapsed to the point where he was going to get rid of him. You know, like it was obviously like I just don't think they could work together anymore. Um, like when you've got players you've got management sniping you like you, you've you kind of have to have a call because at the end of the day you're the boss right and you can't afford to have people like stabbing in the back the whole time and that's basically what they were doing like like prime example was like scotty was pissed off about the contract which he signed and he negotiated and like they're on the bus like a bunch of fucking kids shouting at the teacher up the front you know what i mean like, bullying. like they're bullying a small man yeah I, I, honestly, I honestly thought that was like of all the, the the parts in the movie that I thought were like were kind of where people were kind of being treated shitly, I thought that was probably one of the worst. That was like it was, and it was unfair and it's unnecessary. Jerry Krause deserved better than what happened to him in the Last Dance. And here's the thing: Jordan was always going to have the final say because he's Michael fucking Jordan. Whether the documentary or history indicates, Michael Jordan was always going to have the last say about how how Jerry Krause is going to be received because he's Michael fucking Jordan. So do you so, think? Do you think it was like from the documentary makers' point of it, point of it that it was a very bad taste to put that much stuff in there? But Jerry Krause, especially, he can't defend himself, right? Well, here's the key: uh, the the director in ESPN and the NBA were at Jordan's whims at all times. Um, what if Jordan wanted something in the documentary? It was going to be in the fucking documentary. The only person that has any say over anything that happens in that documentary other than Michael Jordan is his mother who tells him to stop smoking fucking cigars in the house. And that's why you never see him smoking cigars in the house for most of the documentary. That's it. <laughs> everything else is under Michael's control. So if everyone had an issue with how they were portrayed in the documentary is because Michael decided how they were going to be portrayed in the fucking documentary. Like, I can't, I can't stress this enough. Michael Jordan had complete and total creative control over that documentary. So... If you don't like something in there, and it, 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 the fucking flu game shit was a little like I'm making faces with the users can't see, but like yeah, okay, the tainted pizza game, they made you a tainted pizza. So, so sorry, I just just to go back to that, like so the tainted pizza fucking thing, like Michael was the only one who ate it. It almost made them sound like it, it was planted and somebody like poisoned them on purpose. Like what the fuck are you talking about? Like like. It, who knows what he ate that day? Why, why pick on the poor pizza guys? You know what I mean? Yeah, he was probably drinking vodka crayons or some shit on the golf course in <laughs> 100 degrees heat and felt like fucking city all day and ate a fucking pizza and didn't feel good and got sick. Uh, there's a game. Here's a, here's a game. I'll go back to a little bit. In, in the 1993 finals, I believe it's game three or four. I don't know. It's a game in Fe- No, it's game two. It's game two in Phoenix. Michael Jordan's a dark, dark, dark man, like a dark black man, right? Michael Jordan is 80 shades dark because he spent fucking 16 hours a day before playing and eight hours a day earlier, the day of, playing golf in the middle of the Arizona summer. So there's a lot of different things that could have led to Michael being Michael. <laughs> there could be a lot of things that could have led to Michael being Michael, right? It's, it's not – well, the story is it probably wasn't tainted pizza. It was probably poor life choices. Because the way they tell that story, he's like, I got a bad feeling about this and five guys show up at the door. That's all fucking it honestly made it feel like it was the fucking mafia were trying to like yeah, sniff him over yeah. some of that. The, the I, Utah I thought, fucking Mormon mafia was trying yeah. to prevent the fucking Bulls <laughs> I, winning the, six, the Smith yeah. championship, right? Exactly. Like, so, so 
So um, just just a couple of like little nuggets throughout it that I just thought were kind of funny that they were in there and all that kind of stuff. Um, like the the um, <laughs> like the the trip to, to Atlantic City. Like, do you remember how much playoffs? Yeah. yeah. Did you remember like the the media circus around that? You, like to me, it sounded like a fucking like I know you want to be out in New York, but that's like a terrible fucking idea to be going to Atlantic City in the middle of the playoffs and he was still doing it years later. It just, it wasn't, it, it's New York city, the Knicks, the, the New York media and the New York Knicks hadn't learned how to like, they hadn't learned how to get under Jordan's skin yet. But no one knew that Michael Jordan was a psychopath that took every perceived slight as motivation. So they should have just been like left it the fuck alone and said, whatever the bulls lost, let's just not talk about this and like keep moving. But look, Michael Jordan's a, he's a grown fucking man with millions of dollars. He wants to go to Atlantic City after a basketball game to let off some steam. Who the fuck are you to say differently? It's not like he was out abusing people or he went to like a he went to like Epstein's house or some shit. He, he went and played he gambled all night. You know, the, like the, the, the guy, um, the ESPN guy, I think that, that was talking about that made a huge fucking deal about it. You know, like, yeah, that's what that's that was my thinking of it. You know, like I I get. It wasn't a great life decision in the fact of that, you know, there's so much media in New York and people are going to pick up on that shit. But, like, the guy was, like, making, still now making, like, a huge deal out of it. And it's just like, what the, what the fuck, you know? I'm going to give you a cultural first for me and Vince Carter. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Vince Carter had every fucking right to go to his graduation in North Carolina the day of the game seven against the Philadelphia 76ers. As long as he showed up ready to play, which he did, he did. So, average Joes love to pick a professional athlete's choices and their lifestyle choices outside of the sport they play. We're only allowed to criticize human beings as long as they're A, breaking the law, or B, not performing in their field. Michael Jordan still fucking performed the night after he went to fucking – he still played well. Not as well as he – it wasn't his greatest game, but it, this concept that these fucking asshats in the media – and say things while he was out gambling till three o'clock in the morning. Who gives a shit? I mean, like, it's not your business. Like, the Bulls won a lot of championships, and Michael went gambling and drinking after a lot of those fucking games. So, if Michael Jordan wa- if Michael Jordan chooses to let off steam that way, or Dennis Robin chooses to go to Vegas in the middle of the fucking season and like bang Carmen Electra and fucking drink and do whatever he does, it's Dennis Robin's business. Dennis Robin still shows up to perform when he shows up. Now, if Michael Jordan went AWOL from the team like Dennis Robin and never showed back up again, yeah, okay, let's talk about that sort of. Jordan goes AWOL in the playoffs and doesn't show up for a playoff game. Okay, give him his shit. That's fine. But whoever the, I don't remember who it was at ESPN that made a big deal of that. And I don't remember who the people were. I know the one thing the documentary didn't touch on, but he had him in there a lot. So, Mob Rashad was Michael Jordan's best friend. So, that's why when Jordan did the interview with the sunglasses on, Amab was Jordan's best friend. He still is Jordan's best friend, or one of them. So he's, he's part of that inner circle. So, like, Amab would never say a negative thing about Michael because he's Michael's best friend. But, like, a lot yeah, of – like, yeah. Sam Smith wrote the Jordan rules. So Sam Smith is – and they accused Horace Grant of being the snitch. By the way, Horace Grant was the snitch. I'm not fucking – I'm not blocking the fact. He, he was the snitch? Yeah, Jordan was the fucking – the ultimate, like, I want to be perceived as a god. He calls himself god in the documentary. He's a joke, remember? And he's like, edit that out. But he says it. You think Jordan's going to leak negative things about himself to be published to impact his image and his Hanes and his Gatorade and his Nike and his fucking his, uh, he used to do battery commercial that there used to be rechargeable batteries. Jordan had a lot of endorsements. I think Jordan was going to jeopardize that by having come out that he was a bully and an asshole. Like, are you serious? 
like slave to capitalism, Michael Jordan's going to risk his income and his, his prospects to leak to Sam. That's the Horace Grant thing is Michael leaked to Sam Smith, right? Sam Smith's the author of the Jordan rules. No, it was probably you, Horace. Because a year and a half later, after one more season, Horace Grant was out of Chicago running to Orlando to get away from Michael fucking Jordan. So who is it? Uh, obviously, Jordan's first year in baseball coincides with Horace's first year in Orlando. Here nor there. Um, he wanted out of Chicago. He was the snitch. He was the rat. But, like, revisionist history. And now he, Horace Grant gets an interview. He's like, I would beat Michael's ass if I saw him today. No, he wouldn't. Jeez. Fucking idiot. You're 55 so, years old. Shut the fuck up and sit down. So, so guys, another, another like little uh, we nugget in there that was made of a big deal was the uh, uh, the Dennis Rodman with Hulk Hulk Hogan thing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a wrestling fan, so I like that one. Yeah, so, so do you remember that? Of course, I watched the WCW in 1997. Yeah, I remember it vividly. Yeah, he was he's in Pontiac, Michigan, Auburn Hills or whatever. Palace of Auburn Hills is for Nitro. Yeah, everyone watched Nitro. Yeah, of course. I didn't know he had a game that day or a practice that day, but I remember watching that. Yeah, Rodzilla, all that shit. Yeah. But, but, but as you said, like, I mean, like, he still turned up and did the bizzo, right? So, I mean, it, it's. Still grabbed 15 rebounds the next game. Yeah. Like, and that's still the thing. Kurt Malone, though, negative shooting percentage. There, there were so many, like, little uh, sly digs at people that I, I just thought was. It's all uh, Jordan. Yeah. But I again, mean, even like. In Steve, all fairness, though, it, it, now, I remember what I said about Jordan going to Atlantic City and gambling. Show, take you off in the middle of the NBA fucking finals to go film an episode of Monday Nitro. It's, it's pushing it of what I will not judge you for. But like I said, Robin still probably grabbed 15 rebounds, six points, and like held Carl Malone to 40% shooting that night. So, I mean, he did his job. If, you know, if he showed up and he sucked and he grabbed four rebounds, it'd be a fucking real story. But he still played like Dennis Robin was capable of playing. So, I don't care. So, so, so the, the, the last uh... – the last little bit I just want to kind of chat about it because I, I kind of wanted to leave the sad part till the end, unfortunately. Um, obviously, there was like a, a big a big thing about um, like his dad, which is fucking horrific. And, um, you know, there's the, that scene where he was on the floor bawling his eyes out. Um, That's the 96 title, yeah. Yeah, and it was, it was horrific. Like, I mean, and his dad like seemed to be um, a huge catalyst for Michael being a better person in, in fairness because I mean like, apparently like, his dad would like bring a kid back at the end of the game for Michael to you know like kind yeah. of kept him grounded like a little bit um, so that led to the baseball part of things um, so, so you think it was crazy that he went and played baseball in his dad's memory? Like, what? Why? Like, at the time, obviously, you were you you remember it. I remember it vividly. Yeah. How, how much of a shock was that to everybody? Do you understand why he did it? Um, was it a wise decision? Like, what? What? What's, <laughs> what, what's your thoughts on the whole thing? I mean, it's probably not a. I won't call it a wise decision, but Michael Jordan had just won three consecutive NBA championships. Magic, Larry, all his contemporaries and peers, and his, his greatest rivals had never won three in a row. Guys have won two in a row, never won three in a row. So he'd won multiple MVPs. He, the whole bullshit of Atlantic City had just come out. The fucking Jordan rules had come out a year earlier. He won an Olympic gold medal with the Dream Team. He was the most popular athlete and human being on the planet. What was left for Michael Jordan in 1993? Like, let, let's, 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 let's be objective and look at this. As a basketball player, what was there left for Michael Jordan to do? I, I honestly think that, like, like those – stepping back is like it was either 
go for another championship or or leave and yeah. uh, like so, start start a, start somewhere else and kind of create something maybe, something else. Maybe. But what he chose to do was he loved basketball. Baseball. He grew up playing baseball. And he's such a freak athlete and such a freak competitor. And so he's a the, the, Terry Francona's interviewed, who went on to be an all time great head coach in baseball himself, talking about how hard Michael Jordan would work to be better at baseball. He had the work ethic because he wasn't the most talented fucking guy, but he would always work at it. So if Michael felt like he could take that sheer drive, determination, and focus and apply it to baseball and be good at baseball, he probably felt he probably believed in himself to think that he could do it. And to be honest with you, by the end of that shit, they're telling you like Michael Jordan was probably going to make the major leagues by the end. Do you believe that though? Yes, I absolutely believe it. Because people love to portray that narrative. So he has a they talk about he has a hit his first few games or whatever, and then he goes on this giant cold streak because they start throwing him curveballs, and they kind of gloss over the fact that he spent hours a day after every practice and every game practicing hitting fucking curveballs until he could start hitting curveballs. He played in um. He was playing in a winter league, I think, right up before he came back to the Bulls, and he was hitting, like, well over 300. Like, he was coming. Like, he was going to get there. Like, yeah, he had two, he had to get 217 or whatever it was in his first year in Birmingham. Not great numbers, but double it. So they, they kind of touch on it. They said they couldn't put him in A ball because they didn't have the facilities to handle the press that would come to show watch Michael Jordan play baseball. They couldn't put him in triple A because he wasn't there. Yeah. But, Double A, because triple A is right before you go pro, but double A is where you can put your prize prospects and how you have facilities to handle them. He wasn't a fucking bum in double A baseball. You know what I mean? Like, he, he should have been. You know, he, <laughs> that's the purpose of a guy that hadn't played baseball since he was in high school, was 30 years old. He should, he's a 30-year-old rookie in double A. He should have been a fucking bum, but he wasn't. He was still valuable. He could still play. He could still run. He could still jump. He could still play defense. He could still hit. He was a great fastball hitter. He was great in today's game because everyone throws fucking fastballs. But anyway, yes, I believe Michael Jordan could have made it in the major leagues. Would he have been a superstar like Michael Jordan in basketball? Fuck no. But he could have played pro ball. Could he have played at a high level? I don't know. But he could have been a major league baseball player. Yes. So then they uh, they kind of – there was the, the baseball – You see that? Yeah, man. It, it's fucking incredible. But, but, <laughs> I actually have the last shot of my wallpaper on my phone. So showing you. But, yeah. but the um, like then he obviously there was a lockout in, in baseball and all that kind of stuff, and then he kind of just started showing up. But it kind of just shows the kind of person that he is. That somebody challenged him to a game of one on one, and he had to take the challenge. And all that, like it, like it, that's the thing. Like you know, as we we keep on talking about, like that's what champions do. It's like. Um, they they just keep going and they just want to be better. Like I mean, like what other person could go down to like baseball and double A and like spend hours and hours and hours? Like that's huge effort uh, to to be. He didn't have to put in. He yeah. could have just rode off into the sunset well, and gambled get, he, and golfed all those like. Well, well, he's getting paid still his contract, so he's getting paid three million dollars a year to play double A baseball. You know what I mean? With so, a bunch of guys making forty thousand dollars a year if they're lucky. Yeah, and he said that like the guys was treating like one of the guys and all that kind of stuff. So I mean, like it's it's that that part of his of the narrative I thought was was incredible, and to me that kind of shows the kind of person that he is. That he was willing to give up everything to go and follow a dream of his and work at it. It wasn't you know um, just a fuck around for him, which it could have been, right? Yeah, I mean, people like to uh, look at Michael Jordan's baseball time as like a vanity circus and all those things. It wasn't. He took it very seriously. Michael Jordan doesn't half-ass anything. Oh, that's a lie. He half-asses being a general manager and owner of the Charlotte Hornets. Otherwise, he doesn't half-ass anything else in life. 
he would win if he could in Charlotte, but he's, he, he loves money more than he loves winning now in his old age. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I, the Michael Jordan baseball narrative is a really weird one for me because people treat it like it was a joke, and it wasn't a fucking joke because not anybody can just go play double-A baseball to like a, a playable level. Baseball is a fucking hard sport. It is really hard, and it's not appreciated enough for how – it's probably the most difficult sport in the world to be good at, um, in my opinion. So do, so, that, so do you think that his dad, like, he kind of mentioned that his dad said to him, go do whatever you want to? Um, so, so he, yeah, he was, do what you want, son. Yeah, so, exactly. What, what father doesn't tell their son that? When, when, you, when the son has done everything he could ever possibly dream of doing, he's a multimillionaire, he's the face of a fucking entire sport, he's a global ambassador, he's all these things, and he's only 30 years old, and he's tired and he's burnt out. Would you say, no, son, keep dominating the way you're doing? Or would you say, no, son, you know, you've done what you had to do here. Go do something else. Go, go do what makes you happy. You have nothing left to prove here. And that's what his father probably said to him. And Michael was like, yeah, let me go do that to honor my father's memory. He was probably so, dumb with basketball anyway. So, so just like the, the last little piece just before we finish up here, like he came back from baseball. Um, they, they lost – in the playoffs, I think it was like uh, Orlando, the, yeah, yeah, and Horace Grant was like in his face and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But but the thing is though, like I mean, like they're they're talking about how during that that off season, how he like he took that as something where it's like fuck you and I'm gonna come mm-hmm. back and whatever. Like what, what? How incredible was it when he came back after that off season? Like obviously he was filming. Was a Space Jam that he was filming yeah. and then he bringing in all these, which, which is one of my favorite parts of the movie, by the way, when he had, like, just everybody show up on the set. They built a fucking basketball stadium for him pretty much. And it's just a bunch of guys, like, shirts, wears the skins, you know? It's not a bunch of guys, though. It's, a, it's like the, the elite of the elite in the NBA showed up but, to play basketball but, on the set of Space Jam with them. So. But, 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 like, so, first of all, like, uh, you know, the, the, you're, uh, you know stuff about this. So how the fuck did that all come around? How did these guys, like from all around America show up in LA just to play basketball with Michael Jordan. And second of all, like how, how was he when he came back from that off season? Like how, how so, so you want to hire about the 96 season. You don't care. You don't want to know about how he was when he came back in 95, halfway through the season. You want to know about the 96 season? Yeah. Cause I, I mean, like okay. I, I know that when he came back, it, like obviously he, he alluded in the, in the, in, in the documentary that, you know, he'd been, training as a baseball player he had baseball body he had baseball yeah. body and baseball cardio yeah that's 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 why the see that's why when nick anderson said that's not 23 over there that's definitely 45 and that's why jordan came up to 23 and all that the 1996 michael jordan is the coincides with the 1996 chicago bulls being the arguably the best basketball team that ever stepped on a basketball court right? they finished 72 and 10 now that regular season record was broken by the 2016 golden state warriors who went 73 and 9 but they didn't win the championship. LeBron did, so it's not. It's kind of an asterisk next to that record. Seventy-two and ten Chicago Bulls are like the benchmark of basketball. They were the fucking Beatles in nineteen ninety-six. Um, Jordan was a demon. Uh, Scotty was out of this world. He's back being Robin to Batman again, where he belonged. And Dennis was motivated. And Ron Harper came in. Ron Harper is very lightly touched upon in the documentary. Ron Harper was an all-world athlete, an all-world NBA player before he had a really bad knee injury with the Clippers in the early 90s. Because he, he's earlier in the documentary, he's on the Cavaliers. That famous Jordan over Elo shot where he like he's going across, it's the winning game, and jumps in the air. And uh, 
Harper was the guy that was supposed to be guarding him when that shot happened. They put Elo on him instead, which was stupid. So the 96 Bulls were, um, I don't know, to put this in musical terms for people like where you're from, is like the Beatles recording the White Album. Okay, fuck, okay. At the peak of their powers. I, I, would, um, say, I would argue that probably Sgt. Pepper's. Way yeah, I, I don't like the fucking Beatles. So, um, okay, it, get off this fucking podcast. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the fucking Metallica recording, like, you know, Ride the Lightning or whatever, you know, or Master of Puppets. You know, that, that's what the Beatles okay. are. Let's go with Master of Puppets. Yeah, go for it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. Whatever, whatever your favorite Metallica <laughs> is. In, in my case, it's Biggie Smalls recording Ready to Die. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's that peak. Nas recording Illmatic. That's the Bulls in 1996. Now, Michael, the best Bulls team ever, actually, is probably the 1992 Chicago Bulls. Like, they were Jordan, peak athleticism, but still smart. But the 96 Bulls, the league had gotten a little softer and diluted. They were a little more dominant, but they were at the peak of their powers for the last three. The two best teams from both Bulls dynasties, the, 90, the first three-peat and the second three-peat, are 92 and 96. Because the record starts to slip from year to year, 97 to 98. And 91 and 93, they're not as good. The 92 Bulls, the 96 Bulls. Um, if you ask me point blank which Jordan I'd rather have, I'd rather have 92 Jordan over 96 Jordan. But that doesn't mean he sucked in 96. He was still incredible. But he was, they, were, they, were just, they were different in 96. They were, they were old, smart, cagey veterans that knew how to win basketball games and did whatever it took to win. And uh, how was Michael Jordan in 1996? He, the athleticism was kind of all but gone. He was still a little bit there. But remember, in 96, he's 33 years old. So he's not 1986 Michael Jordan. Again, like, right? Like, he's not 1992 Michael Jordan. He's 33-year-old Michael Jordan. So that 96 is the beginning of the, the, the visceral Jordan, the, the turnaround fadeaway jumpers and the footwork and the, the KG gamemanship and intelligence and basketball, knowing basketball and inside and out, whereas, like, 92 Jordan is still peak of his physical pa- prowess powers, Jordan. Thank you, Lee. Oh, so... Um... My my last my, my last last question is so for people who are football fans and uh, and basketball fans, what's what's the best five games they should watch of Michael Jordan to make them realize how much of a legend he is? Um, game, I want to say game two or three, the nineteen ninety one NBA Finals is a good one. Either way, either game will do. Game one of the nineteen ninety two NBA Finals where he utterly annihilates Clyde Drexler. Um, the last shot game, uh, game six, uh, 1998 NBA finals is a good one. Um, if you want to see Jordan freak Jordan, his rookie season, uh, or his second season against the Boston Celtics, I think in 86, the 86 Celtics, which are by the way, one of the greatest teams of all time. They gloss over that, but the 86 Celtics are one of the five greatest basketball teams ever assembled. The one where he scores 63 and they show him dribbling and the signs and legs in front of Larry Bird. That's that game. Cause that's a really something to see. That's four. And another Jordan game. Watch the game in 97 where he wore the Jordan ones again against the Knicks in the garden. Or was it 98? Where he, so he scored, I think he scores like 49 with bleeding feet. That's a, that's a pretty interesting game. Um, any of those games, there's tons, man. Like, uh, like you know, like I give it like game, game four against Phoenix. And uh, 93 is a great one. Uh, any game in the – I also, uh, any game in the 1991 Eastern Conference Finals against the Pistons where he's just had enough and he's bulked up from 195 pounds to 217 pounds. Um, Jordan, watch the fucking 89 game against the Cavs 
where he hits the jumper. You know, like, there's so many great Jordan games. There's Jordan shots and games you forget about because, like, there's the iconic, iconic, like, there's the last shot. But there's one thing I want to talk about this, in this that didn't get mentioned in the documentary. It's one of my favorite basketball stories of all time. And it doesn't involve Michael Jordan, but it does involve the Bulls. It's game one of the 1997 NBA Finals. Carl Malone's on the free throw line. The, the Jazz are down by two, I believe. So if he gets both these free throws, the Jazz tie the game and have a chance to force the overtime. It's, I believe it's in Utah, but it might be in Chicago. Anyway, Carl's about to line up at the free throw line. Carl's a little easy to push and bend and break. He chokes. He's known for choking a little bit. It happens in 98 again. But Scottie Pippen walks over to Carl Malone while he's like warming up to take his free throw on the line. And he looks at, and Carl Malone's nickname was the mailman. Because he always was the neighbor. Jesus fucking Christ. It was, the, it was the 80s, my guy. Leave me alone. Anyway, Scotty <laughs> leans into Carl and says, you know, Carl, in that deep-ass voice of Scotty's, you may be the mailman, but the mailman don't deliver on Sundays. And went back to the line. And Carl bricks both free throws and the Bulls win game one. <laughs> that, that's it's an incredible story that got completely left out because if Michael Jordan had said it, it would have been in the fucking documentary. But because Scotty Pippen said it, it wasn't. So, yeah, you know, Carl, the mailman doesn't deliver on Sundays. It's probably one of my favorite basketball stories of all time. And fuck, fuck Michael Jordan for not putting it in. That's, that's I I, I, all I can hear of is that Barry White voice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the mailman don't deliver on. <laughs> a deep southern drawl too. The mailman don't deliver on. <laughs> so I just want to thank you for, for joining us and uh, letting us know, helping us, well, helping me out to understand the documentary a little bit better. I really appreciate it. This next section was recorded and produced by Sam Gillette. Sam's a recent King's Journalism graduate who angled a lot of his coursework to cover the Wanderers and soccer in Halifax. He's now based in Ontario and is writing freelance while job hunting. And he's missing watching his one true love, the mighty Tottenham Hotspur. This story was produced for his final workshop at King's and might have looked pretty different if not for COVID-19. If all had gone to plan, it would have been a triumphant story of Liverpool fans in Halifax finally celebrating the biggest prize in English football. But instead, it morphed into a picture of the Halifax Liverpool fans just before the sporting world shut down. Many thanks to the Halifax Liverpool Supporters Club who welcomed Sam into Dirty Nellies with open arms, even though he is a Spurs fan. And Mark Pinio and Dick Miller for help with the production. So sit back and relax, and here we go. This is before the virus. It's the sounds of a happy, crowded square outside a soccer stadium in Liverpool, a port city on England's west coast. And it's not just any stadium, it's Anfield and it fits over 50,000 people. And Liverpool, the team which calls Anfield home, was poised to win the Premier League this year. Jurgen Klopp's team this season, 103 points taken from the last 105, 53 league games unbeaten at Anfield, and just five more wins required to seal the title. Fabinho replaces the injured captain, Jordan Henderson, this evening. That's the biggest, most competitive league in the world by many accounts. But exactly 4,384 kilometers away in Halifax, Nova Scotia, the sound levels are a bit quieter. I'm outside Dirty Nellie's, an Irish pub sitting above a Starbucks in Halifax's entertainment district. 
I was here to meet up with Steve Kempton and Chris Perkins. I was here to find out how they're bringing Liverpool a little bit closer to their home on Canada's east coast. We've quit our jobs to come here. It's all Liverpool all the time. This is Chris. So you're the you're the co-founder, kind of Yes, exactly. It's a couple weeks before COVID-19 took over the news cycle. Before COVID-19 prompted a near worldwide pause on professional sport. And it was before it sunk in that Liverpool wasn't going to win the league anytime soon. It would have been an almost sure win for the storied English team, which hadn't lifted the coveted trophy for almost 30 years. But this is before all that. A smattering of patrons mill around wooden tables. Most wear red jerseys, scarves draped across their necks. Before the match kicks off, Steve hangs flags from empty whiskey bottles on Nelly's shelves. They come with your uh, uh, international membership. Uh, okay, I get you. So my, my girlfriend actually donated one. Uh, and uh, the, uh, this is Anfield one, uh, and I think one other I bought. Across from us, a projector is unfurled down the wall, and staff members set up the stream. Yeah. So, yeah. So, it, like, transforms into a Liverpool pub for it now. Does. Yeah, for now, well, you but, see the transformation yeah. going on around you, right? Yeah. So, yeah, it transforms into a Liverpool pub uh, for the games, and then afterwards, you'd never know we were here. It feels a little bit like a portal. From Halifax to Liverpool, two port cities, united by sport and the love of it. Steve is the regional coordinator for emergency preparedness and response at Health Canada. So, as you could imagine, he's a little bit busy right now. Hi, I'm Steve Kempton, and I'm the secretary with the Liverpool Halifax Supporters Club. Uh, I just started playing soccer growing up in Montreal on the West Island, and uh, my dad and I were watching TV one night. It was PBS, and they used to broadcast the English First Division match of the week on Monday nights after all the weekend action was complete. So the first game that I ever watched on TV was Nottingham Forest against Liverpool. Interesting, Henson getting up into the front and causing some problems, but McGovern gets it away. Here's Highway. Uh, so at the same time that I was Googling internet searches on how to start a Liverpool supporters club, Chris had just moved out here from Fort McMurray and being a lifelong Liverpool fan himself, something he inherited from his father, uh, he decided just to start a Facebook page. And so one night when I was doing my internet search, uh, the Liverpool... Uh, Halifax Supporters Club popped up on Facebook and I said what's this and so it promulgated a time and a meeting place for the next match uh, over in Dartmouth so I went and like I said there were five of us sitting around a table and that's just how we got connected and with the, the Facebook page and just word of mouth it just slowly got out there and, and built uh, until we've got what we have now we've got over a Hundred and I think we have 128 paid members now with the club, and like I said, we had 250 jammed in here for the Champions Final last season, and I'm sure we'll have a solid attendance uh, for the game. You set up the game for me tonight. You talk about who they're playing, what that kind of game means for them. Well, it's it's the continued defense of the title. Uh, so Atletico Madrid, a very cagey side to play against, as we saw in the first leg. They are a, a very tough side to play against. They know how to set themselves up defensively. Uh, they're also, like some Spanish teams, well-versed in the dark arts. Uh, so we saw some questionable calls uh, that we feel if I you know, put my subjective Liverpool hat on uh, against our team. And, and so they came away with a 
hard-fought 1-0 victory. I don't, I don't think that there was anything uh, that Liverpool's you know sh- should be ashamed of performance-wise. I think they they played well. Uh, just didn't you know some unlucky turns uh, didn't capitalize on all the chances. But we're coming to Anfield now, and this is Fortress Anfield. We have not lost a match at Anfield in almost two years, if not over two years now. There's over 50 people here as the game is about to kick off from kids to those with canes. Most tables have pictures of Jurgen Hot Beer, named after the famous manager of Liverpool, and it's a staple of the Halifax Liverpool supporter experience. Uh, we've actually caused them to run out on a couple of occasions uh, that sales have been so brisk. So fortunately, the, the brewing company Propeller uh, quickly caught on, and, and Nelly's made sure that they had enough casks here to, to meet the demand. Remember Chris Perkins? He watches most of the game standing, pint of Jürgen Hopp in hand, talking to those around him. Yeah, it's a sense of community, to be honest. And like, I didn't know anyone in Halifax when I first moved here. So to your point, when I walk in, I see my friends there. Like, I'd probably be quite lonely here if it wasn't for that. As the game kicks off, I sit next to a couple fans who loudly discuss different players' calibers, their strengths, their weaknesses. And they sit right next to three middle-aged women wearing Liverpool jerseys. One, Trent Alexander-Arnold, a 21-year-old superstar of the English game. They all groan at the misses, the shots which curl over the netting. I sat beside Gail Lethbridge, a local newspaper columnist, with a friendly smile who snagged a seat about 10 minutes after the game kicked off. I used to live in England, and when I come down here, it makes me feel like I'm back in England again. So this this just allows me to, you know, be part of that community that has such a strong association with the UK. after Liverpool's star striker, Sadio Mane, slots a beautiful curling shot home into the left-hand side of Atletico Madrid's goal. Can you feel it, she says. It's joy. Can you feel the joy? At halftime, midway through the match, one bearded man pulls out a guitar and sets his pint down. On a projector, a video of a Liverpool fan concert pops up. Over 50,000 red-clad supporters, delirious with pre-match fervor before the 2019 European final, a game which draws four times the TV viewership than the Super Bowl. In front of them, a sprightly young lad named Jamie Webster bounds across the stage in a sweat-soaked t-shirt with his acoustic guitar. He treats the crowd to ancient songs about Liverpool like this one, The Fields of Anfield Road. As he sings to the crowd, the Liverpool Halifax fans raise their scarves and sing along. The guitarist in front of them turned towards the screen, singing along to the song word for word. Liverpool loses the game, and that's pretty rare this season. Steve, how are you feeling? Crushed, but 
That's just the way it goes. So. Make it easier. Does it kind of soften the blow when you're with Oh, sure. I mean, you know, everybody's here and we're all in the same boat and uh, we're commiserating, but, you know, it's uh, tomorrow's another day, as they always say. The crowded bar is darker now. It's around 6.30 on a Monday night, but not so the atmosphere. Scarves are raised, and for one last time this season at least, friends shake hands. The team's most famous song seems especially fitting now, as fans of the beautiful game across the world sit at home, alone, amidst a pandemic. The Halifax Liverpool supporters group joins in, scarves high, arms wrapped around each other. They're together, united by a passion for a team, for a sport that ensures even in a small city on Canada's east coast, even while Anfield sits empty and soccer fans are shuttered inside, that they'll never truly walk alone. You've been listening to The Last Call, a Down the Pub podcast production. Thanks to our guest Steve Steele and also thanks to Sam for allowing us to publish his work. Chris will be with you starting next week. Make sure to get your beers in for The Last Call. You're listening to The Last Call, a Down the Pub podcast production. Make sure to hit that subscribe button so you never miss an episode.